Welcome to News of the Money World, an informing, insightful, and inquisitive look into how news events from around the world affect us everyday investors. Your hosts are myself, Darcy Ungaro, host of the NZ Everyday Investor Podcast and Qualified Financial Advisor, and Rupert Carlon, founder of Kura KiwiSaver, one of New Zealand's most cutting-edge, passively managed KiwiSaver providers. Every fortnight, 5.30 p.m. sharp, tune in live on YouTube or on Facebook. Ask some questions, provide some counterpoints, help influence the discussion. Now remember, all investing carries risk. We hope this helps you understand markets better, but please remember to do your own research too before acting on anything talked about here. Hope you enjoy today's show. Cool, we are live. Welcome to News of the Money World. I'm Darcy Angaro, and today I've got a special triage. Is that the right way? No, special threesome of delight. No, that's not, that's not appropriate either. We have two other people in the room today. So we're going to have a really, really good chat. And I'm going to stop talking before I get in more trouble. So firstly, you might not have seen this face for a while. So I'm just going to flash up Cole on the screen. Cole, how are you? Where am, I, where am I looking again? You look anywhere you want. You can look at me. You can look over there. It's all good. I will look at the orchestrator of this threesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for Darcy's eyes. Looking look look into my eyes. Oh, boy. Okay. It's hard to multitask. I will do my best. My name is Cole Hapfiaho. I am the chief executive fishmonger of Find Fat Fish. I run something called the Your First Stock Workshop that specializes in helping everyday investors no longer feel like everyday investors. And so I help them dial in exactly what they're using this as a tool to achieve. So it's personalized to them and their time horizon and then show them how to pick their own stocks, invest their own money and not need not be overly or excessively reliant on institutions or individuals that they don't like or respect. Well said, very carefully said, but well said. <laughs> and um, and Rupert, why don't well, just for fun, let's actually um, let's actually mention what you do, Rupert, because yeah, we've been talking every week now for quite a while here. Just as a reminder for our audience, uh, who are you? What do you do, Rupert? So my name is Rupert Carlion. I am the founder, managing director of a Kiwi Saver scheme called Kura Wealth. Um, we, we've been set up about giving to give people the retirements they expect and they deserve. And we do that through access to advice. We're first in the market with a series of digital advice tools um, to help people make the right KiwiSaver decisions. And then recently we've kind of expanded our offering to engage with a number of uh, specialty funds um, to give people the freedom and choice to invest their KiwiSaver in the ways that they want to. So that means a new cryptocurrency fund, a new clean energy fund and a brand new property fund. So trying to kind of treat people like grown-ups, giving them help, but at the same time, giving them the options to make the choices they would like to for their KiwiSavers. Cool. And I, lo I love that whole treat, let, let people actually act like uh, grown-ups type thing, right? So today we're going to be act acting like grown-ups or we're going to be talking like grown-ups as much as we can, but we're going to chew on a what seems like almost like a something on a continuum where you're, whether you're either this or you're that you're you're, you're either going to be a concentrated investor or you're going to be a diversified investor my view is i try to keep an open mind as much as possible and everything in every season for the right person right but let's talk about concentration first cole because that's kind of your main area tell me what concentration what, what does it mean to be a concentrated investor so my initial foray into that explanation as we talked about on our original uh episode together the intelligent lazy investor 
um, which sadly was just a couple rather than a threesome. No, I'm kidding. Um, was um, <laughs> that I learned investing in two hours, essentially on a cruise ship, where my dad was so disgusted. He used to run a hedge fund. Was so disgusted to learn that his youngest son was studying screenwriting that he yanked me out of college and taught me investing one hour a day on a cruise ship that he was at that time orbiting around the world and, subsid and subsidizing through synergistic passive income vehicles. And so what he said in terms of and using basically four bullet points concentration being one of them, he took me from someone who couldn't and ne would have never considered even trying to someone who actively was playing the game. And so the observation about concentration was how much to buy. Concentrate to create when you're a young man because you have time to recover when you're wrong, if you're wrong. Diversify to protect when you're an old man because if you lose your nest egg, you're, I don't know if we're swearing on here, but he threw in one of those words. and. Um, you know, but we, I guess we could say screwed in a PG-13 way. And so for me, it has become clear exactly to your point that we're operating on a spectrum here and thinking about this like nuanced grown-ups, not moronically simple children in the sandbox. There is a spectrum between sort of adult or like young man and old man. And in some contexts, as an example, a 25-year-old with a mortgage and five dependents is significantly older in that equation than a freewheeling 75-year-old who's just doing his thing with, with nobody depending on them. And so it all needs to be understood in context. But as I understood it from the beginning, what, what it's about is concentrating in assets that you have conviction in and really swinging for the seat provided that you're not doing anything unethical or illogical, taking undue risk. Yeah. And diversification is more of a defensive hedge, as Warren Buffett would say, against your own ignorance. That's great. Uh, Rupert, taking the other side, so we you know, concentrated, you're doubling down, you're moving ahead with something that you have high conviction on. Diversification, some eggs, many baskets, hedge your bets. What would be the, the best sort of explanation that you can give us in terms of what that means? So I, I agree on the passive nature and the lazy nature of diversification, but that is the beauty of it, is the most investors that are out there are people that don't do a huge amount of work that want to kind of save and create a set of savings that actually allow them to prosper in later life or they're saving for a set of objectives and therefore, if we want to make it quick and easy for them to do that, then what is needed to happen is they need to reduce their risk. And so they need to diversify. And at the same time, by diversifying, what they are also able to do is that means they reduce their risk. I uh, take the point around concentration and that a 25-year-old can afford to lose it all and start again. But I think for most people, they, for everyday people, sorry, the issue is if they do suffer significant loss or lose most of it, then actually what we find is that they take they move from being someone that was previously an investor to now they've got their money invested in the bank. And I think that's that's where I kind of come at it from a slightly different view. Um, I, I completely understand that to, to earn upsized returns, you need to take some risk and you need to diversify. My, my argument would be, is that appropriate for everyone? And, and like Warren Buffett, right? Like, because everybody, everybody knows, well, I shouldn't say everybody knows Warren Buffett, but I know that if I was to describe myself as someone who never met me before, I'd probably say I'm the illegitimate love child of Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, perhaps, mm -hmm. hopefully, right? But so I get it, but at the same time, I kind of feel a little bit conflicted with some of the messages that they say. So he's all about 
concentration, yet at the same time, he would recommend to his wife, hey, if I ever pass away, just invest in an index. So is it true, like, am I hearing this correct? And maybe I'll ask this question for you, Cole. Is it true that diversification is for dummy, concentration is for experts? Mm. So I definitely agree with Rupert in the sense that there is, concentration is not for everyone. And if you're unprepared and not willing to get prepared, or you don't even believe that it's possible to become prepared, you have absolutely no business really taking this on yourself. But I do think that there's a grow, an ever-growing number of people that feel exactly the opposite about that, that want to pursue this and be treated and be spoken to and just pursue this like an adult who's in charge of their own destiny. And in that case, you know, I do disagree with aspects of what's been said, and which is the traditional argument about diversification versus concentration, which begs a couple of redefinitions and sort of myth flickings. So the first myth that I would flick is that this takes a lot of time. You have to be willing to front load the work, but once you front loaded the work, you can intelligently do nothing or almost nothing. I am certain about that based on 16 years of experience doing it and 10 years of experience of onboarding other people. If you're not willing to front load the work or if the strategy that you're following is nonsense, that does not apply, right? And then the second thing is, and I literally haven't, honestly, I'm not really sure that I've seen this spoken or written anywhere, but there needs to be a redefinition of volatility versus risk. The two terms are being used interchangeably all the time, and it's just, in, it's objectively and massively expensively inaccurate. Well, because, and I want you to expand on this because you, you mentioned this before, and mm. like I'm guilty of this as well, just thinking that they're the same thing. And I know that they're not, but yeah. I just can't remember why. Right. So can you, can you break that down for me? 100%. Right? So volatility is not risk for the same reason that a mood swing is not a death. And so you can't die from a mood swing. Volatility is something temporarily going like this, typically driven by the screechings of the press and therefore the public. And so it is a reversible thing we're going through it at an extraordinarily, extraordinarily global level right now, whereas risk is something permanently dropping to zero, not because of anybody's perception, because of the objective reality and failure of a given company, currency, or what have you. And so volatility is short-term, risk is long-term. To Rupert's point, though, if you haven't adequately defended yourself against the fear and massive psychological hell that you go through during volatility, you are better off diversified and you're better off, frankly, with somebody else handling your money and unable to call them. Like, you know, your hands are tied behind your back. You cannot call them in panic sell. You'd be better off making that rule with yourself. But if you are absolutely willing and able to do the work, and see that you can invest in companies that genuinely have protection from, they're just not realistically gonna go out of business. Currencies, I know that you're super passionate about crypto. If you can find a currency that is gonna be here, you are operating with the same level of risk, as long as you are reading reality correctly as somebody who's investing across 500 companies. And so, you know, those are myths that need to be flicked, but I understand why they've been so persistent. But, but the work one I find most interesting, right? Because, so what you said, a huge amount of work up front and 100% agree with that. But don't you need to redo that work? Because, I mean, history is littered with companies that were once great companies that are no longer in existence. And so it's all about, because the, the problem with investing and concentrated investing, it's not only about knowing when to get in, but also when to get out. And so that's kind of, I think about, I mean, the New Zealand context, telecom, 
is the obvious one. I mean, in the US, we sit there at the moment and we look at, say, an Apple, a Microsoft, um, an Amazon and go, I mean, at the moment, it's pretty hard to see where these things fall apart. Facebook, arguably two years ago, it was hard to see where that thing fell apart. But what we do know with capitalism is that all companies have their heydays. And I mean, GE would be a good example of one in the US market where 10, 15 years ago, that was the bellwether stock that every single person wanted to own. But the work needs to keep on going because fundamentally there are very few companies that you can put in your portfolio and just sit there and go, I'm just going to sit there and I'll come back in 10 years and kind of see where it's happened. Mm. And I guess like one of the things that that I, I remember um, one of the videos I saw with, with uh, Warren Buffett was he said that if he was to do it all over again, he'd probably just pick three of the best companies in Berkshire Hathaway and just invest in them. But I guess what you're saying, Rupert, is that if you did research on just holding three companies and you had a very concentrated thing, it's not as enough just to get started and do a lot of work to get started, but it's also to continually to do a lot of work to make sure that you know when to get out. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Exactly right. I mean, Archipegio was that example, right? So Archipegio, the, the hedge fund, where again, highly leveraged, so arguably uh, very, very high risk. But again, it's kind of, those were great bets, great companies that worked really, really well until they didn't. And I think that's, there's always, we're picking when those turning points are and when you get out, that that's the bit that I also find interesting and go, that's quite hard. A, 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 someone that I know invested a long time ago in News Corp. Again, thinking that was a great company that was going to be there for absolute ever. And it, it was for the first 15 years of the investment. And then pretty quickly in the early 2010s, that 15 years worth of investment got unwound. And so that's, I guess, where I'm kind of trying to figure figure out is going every, at least the advice that I give people, every year you need to redo the work to make sure that the reason you initially bought it is still there. And as a kind of a, some of the trading guys that I used to work with said to me, you should only ever keep a stock if you would be willing to keep on buying it. And the only reason you're not buying it uh, is because of your risk limits. What do, you, what do you say to that, Cole? Like, is it in terms of your own investing style? Is that mm -hmm. something that you've kind of followed, like in terms of a focused investing style, where it's like you keep on backing it, and then as soon as you doubt yourself, do you pull out of it? Oh, no, absolutely not. Well, actually, over time, what I've learned, and I, I talked, I shared this with you. I actually neurotically shared this with you by email before you published our first episode. Oh, wow. Okay. Investing's hardest, and this is something that should be trumpeted right now during this massive volatility that we're in. Investing's hardest actions are to research, buy, and hold. Do not invent excuses not to research, buy, and hold. If you're over cynical, you know, it's smart, smart to be skeptical, but stupid to be cynical. If you're over cynical, you won't do the research. If you're over trepidatious, you won't pull the trigger and buy, and especially, especially due to greed, fear, or boredom, it's supremely hard to hold. And Rupert makes a good point. And like in, in what I said, if you were looking to like find a reason why the even the ambitious New Zealand everyday investors should not get involved, that's an interesting point, but it further promotes the idea of why you would want to be more concentrated because needing to track one, two, three, four, five companies if you're front loading the work and then all you need to do is just get directional confirmation that your conviction is intact is not that time consuming. But if you're trying to carry what like, I shouldn't say any names, I guess, but like certain prominent stock newsletters recommend that people do, which is a number like 30, 35, that's not a doable thing. That's a part-time or a full, probably more like a full-time job. And it's overwhelming 
it, it probably follows a strategy of overwhelming people into compliance. Like, here's my money, I, I'm incapable, you know what I mean? But if you're following a handful and like, it's hard to have this conversation and not bring Peter Lynch into it, right? Who's the most successful investor of the late seventies and the eighties turned 18 million into 14 billion in 13 years, published three books, one, starting with one up on Wall Street in 1989, saying that he would have had significantly better results if he had had the freedom of an amateur, and that he recommends that amateurs, that they can do this if they're willing to do their homework, if they're willing to at least do as much researching a company as they do researching a microwave, like you can do this, and that he, because he was a manager, was forced to own and track 1,400 stocks to the point where he burnt out and needed to leave his position because it was hurting his relationship with his family. If you are dialed into best practices as an amateur investor, that again, the most successful institutional investor, one of the most diversified people of all time, advocated beginning loudly in 1989. Shockingly unknown, that literature, you're on point and you're okay. But to Rupert's point, if, if you're inventing concerns in your head about too much workload, too much volatility, I'm not incapable of doing this, and you don't have some kind of driving psychological reason to beat down all of that self-doubt, you are absolutely better handing your money over, which again, and I saw your, uh, your Warren Buffett sort of beatdown of diversification that you've cobbled together. What's fascinating about them, and obviously I have infinite respect for them, just like Peter Lynch in terms of sort of speaking their truth, is that they are anti-diversification for themselves, but not for Joey Public, not That's for right. the gen That's general public. Yeah. And that is where, this is obviously so massively subjective, mm. but I know based on my own experience and my experiences in teaching that the everyday investor who's willing to engage can do this, but you, you do, you have to be a bit different. You have to be rarely determined to the biggest thing is crossing the bridge of fear, as they say, and actually stepping into the game. But to Rupert's point, you you do have to be serious to make your serious enough to make your own judgment calls about how much research is enough upfront and on be it a monthly, quarterly, annual basis. You have to be willing to be a grown up and make those calls yourself. Yeah. And that is massively disqualifying for a whole lot of people for most of their lives, if not all of their lives. That was good. Thank you, Cole. Uh, but go, let's go back to that volatility piece. Because um, right now is a really interesting time, right? Like that it's scary for a lot of people because the volatility, as long as it goes up is okay. But when it goes down, and yeah, by the way, it goes both directions. <laughs> people freak out and think everything's broken and, and someone gave them terrible advice and they chose the wrong fund or whatever, right? It's everybody else's fault. But that's kind of like what's happening right now. And we have two two competing sort of paradigms here. One would be a concentrated strategy heading into a season of volatility. One would be a diversified strategy heading into volatility. One you have, um, like with this diversification, you've got volatility kind of affecting companies a little bit to varying different degrees, but you blend it all together and it's not so bad. It's a little bit more, more tolerable. But with a concentrated strategy, I guess it's subject to how well that those individual companies or individual company copes with volatility. But you've got to assume that if you made a good decision buying that company, you'd assume that they'd weather out all the storms that would come. So going back to you, maybe Rupert, in terms of a diversified strategy heading into a, a scary sort of volatile time, like what we might be in right now, do you kind of feel like it's, it's a no brainer? You always want to be diversified for moments like this? Oh, look, I do. Um, because I think you're never quite sure what's going to recover when or what's going to be hit when it's going to be hit and when it's going to recover. 
but I, but I also I completely agree that actually I think we get confused about the terms risk and volatility. And so fundamentally, if I own five stocks right now, if I own, I don't know, so if I own Microsoft, Apple, GM, Dell, whatever, something else, I would have seen them, they, but my, the value of my portfolio would be down 30, 35%. Would I be overly worried? Probably not, because I know those are four or five companies that are gonna survive and they're gonna see me through it. And so I 100% agree the definitions of volatility and risk, which I blame the regulators for, by the way, have become 100% confused. But in saying all of that, I think as professionals and as money managers, unfortunately, we are judged on quarterly, six-monthly, 12-monthly returns. And that is why we take the approaches that we take. I also think no matter how much work you do, out of those five companies that I've just talked about, there is a high chance there will be one or two of them that do not recover. Um, and I think that's the bit that you kind of go, I and evidence kind of shows that there are very few people that can consistently deliver, and particularly for the amount of work that they need to do, can consistently deliver those returns into the long run. So I, I don't necessarily, as long as you're kind of sticking with the blue chip names and sticking at the top of the table, I don't kind of see a massive risk in being overly concentrated. Um, it's when people go highly concentrated at the bottom in the smaller companies where actually it doesn't take much of a hit to completely wipe them out. That, that's where I think we kind of, could, that's where risk is very different to volatility. And that's the piece that people don't understand. But yeah, that, that's my big issue, right? It's kind of going, if I'm playing for the 20 year play, yeah, how much work do I actually have to do? And am I really going to get the returns from it? And I guess it, it, it's all so personal based on who you are, right? Like if you thought, hey, I am never, ever, ever going to be able to stomach the idea of investing, yeah, 80% of my portfolio in one stock. I can't, I can't stomach the idea that I don't have that kind of money or whatever this, the story is, then really until you get to that place, or maybe you never get that place, the default should always be a diversified strategy. I think that's kind of like a no brainer, but why would, um, I guess I, I, I think I know the answer to this, but it's, to me, it kind of seems also structurally, there's, there's an industry bias towards diversification because it's really hard to run a, a fund management business with just one or two stocks in the mix. You know what I mean, Rupert? Like, is that kind of, is, is it no, no, the, the, the reason it's hard is because we're not allowed to. The, the reason that it's hard to do it is because we all have exposure limits, um, limiting our ability to do that. And I think, I mean, someone was talking to me uh, earlier in the week about Fisher Funds. Fisher Funds in its early days, they had four stocks in their portfolio and they delivered some great returns. And so I think there are some rare stories of where this works out really well. But the reason we have our risk limits is because too much stuff is blown up. I mean, I think you look at hedge funds, which are arguably the most researched and some of the smartest people around, and very few hedge funds beat the uh, market over the long run because they're taking highly concentrated bets. And that, that's, I think, the, the, the problem is the evidence doesn't really show that actually in a professional money management space, that actually concentration works. Mm, okay. And I guess some of this comes from the actual investors themselves, because investors probably 
would be screaming at you to perform according to an index anyway. So you have pressure from investors, you have pressure from regulators who probably don't understand the difference between volatility and risk, like you said. So everything is just like everything kind of forces you to do that, even though it's not technically the best strategy. Is that kind of what you're saying? Uh, yeah, and I and I kind of also go, I, I just I technically, but it's not even that there's the technical element which can disappear out of it, but it's actually they're just very, very, but kind of from where I sit at least, and sorry, this is me paying full cards on the table. There are very, 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 very few investors in the world that are able to make a concentrated strategy work over the long run. Um, and that's the bit that kind of fundamentally, I think, particularly when you think about the risk that the people are taking on, because it is actually real risk when you have a concentrated strategy. It's not just for volatility, um, because fundamentally, if you've got five, we think about the laws of capitalism, where 10% of all businesses fall apart every year over that kind of a five year period or 10 year period out of that five or 10 companies, one or two should fall over. That's a good, good way of putting it in perspective. But going back to what you said before, Rupert, I'll get you to respond to this one, Cole. How likely is it if you met an everyday person who was really serious about doubling and doubling down with their investments, how confident are you as someone who kind of works with people a little bit in this space, how confident are you that you can turn an everyday person into a very good focused investor? No, oh, I literally, that's been, I don't kind of work in it a little bit though. Like I, that's my exact specialty, but the thing is, and I'm supremely careful about who I onboard into the experience because to Rupert's point, like there's a number of reasons, some of which are absolutely hundred percent valid. Some are on shakier legs, why the average person, especially psychologically unmotivated without solvency, should not be doing this, has absolutely no business doing this. The basic thing is, are you absolutely dead serious about being able to look yourself in the eye, forget anyone else, and say to yourself, I am 100% able to work because I want to, not because I have to. And there's absolutely no ounce of me that is afraid that I'm going to outlive my money. Are you dead serious about achieving that as soon as humanly possible under your own power? Or are you not? And that is, I cannot tell you how exclusionary that is. It, it strips it to the people that are willing to step up and be outliers, I guess you could say. And to me, like, I hear what Rupert is saying. I think if we run it back, though, there is a conflation still between volatility and risk, which I can totally understand because this is ubiquitous. And the other thing is, if I, I have absolutely no words for how to successfully run a um, like a, a professional fund because subject to the legality, the culture, the the various pressures, not just in New Zealand, but anywhere, it's a harder game. It's, it's supremely a harder game, which is exactly the point that Peter Lynch made in 1989. He's like, trust me, he's like, my colleagues aren't stupid. He's like, we're just embattled. We are embattled with a whole bunch of like complacency think and legal hurdles, et cetera. And so for me, it's like, to challenge the idea that there is more risk in um, in a concentrated portfolio, like the answer to that is so screamingly obvious that it's right in front of anybody's face. It is, I have it down here that there are six, at least six major reasons why concentration beats diversification for the amateur investor. And one of them is the oligarchic argument, which is Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer, the list goes on. How did they become so wealthy where at one time, two years ago, 
Um, Jeff Bezos had more money than half the United States combined, where it was because they successfully held one successful company for a long period of time. That's where the money came from and nothing and the inequality came from while everybody else was diversifying over leveraging on real estate, et cetera, et cetera, to the point where literally, I wish this was a joke, but it's not 11% of Amazon was worth more in Jeff Bezos's hands than 50% of American net American net worths. So 160 million families net worths were worth less than 11% of Amazon, which he had partially divested because of his divorce. And so for me, it's like the answer. And if you listen to uh, Musk, I'm not a, I'm not sort of a Musk acolyte by any means, but he's fascinating. And if you listen to him talk for five minutes, he will throw out there that he is absolutely concentrated between his companies and a small handful of cryptos. And that's it. And so it's like kind of a combination of my passions and your passions concentrated. And that's it. And so that's how the richest people in the world are becoming the richest people in the world. And the major difference between the everyday investor and those people is simply self-belief and a couple of myths. And I promise you that one poorly placed assumption is the most expensive thing in your life. It is the most shackling thing in your life. And it is rife in this conversation. But at the same time, Rupert, I give you all the credit in the world because a, you're game to question assumptions. B, you're showing up and doing good work. And I believe over time, like you're kind of in the business of creating the best kitchen and I'm in the business of creating the best cook cook class. And you're in the business of also providing a damn good cook class and the best sort of podcast about cooking. I'm just hungry, man. And, <laughs> and I, believe, I believe over time that the right kitchen, provided that there is ample preparation, right? And the human capital... Oh, and like sort of democratization of the education is not on the same level as the technological abilities that companies like you, Sherzy's these hatch are making possible. But when it does even out, that kitchen will enable like a, a hefty amount of do it yourself, but then also the right outlets that you're currently providing for people that are like, you know what, I'm too scared, I'm too dumb, whatever, who want to be treated, I guess, less like grownups. Well said. Rupert, uh, before we finish up, final words? Oh, and look, I agree, right? I think uh, 100% agree that there is no question if you want to create outsized wealth and then the only way you can do that is by taking risk, is taking bets. And you've got to kind of, you do need to follow a concentrated portfolio there. I also 100% agree with Cole. Actually, it kind of, if you are in your, 25, in your 20s or your 30s, if you're going to give it a go, that is the time to do it. Um, but I think... It's as long as people that go down the strategy also know that look, the chances of success are not huge unless you've been through training, unless you've done a huge amount of work. And, and I think, look, I 100% understand and, and agree that it is a great strategy for a lot of people. The, the one stat that kind of keeps on coming back in my head, though, is financial advisors are often the worst investors in the world. The reason we <laughs> because they tell their customers and their clients to go and become diversified and do all that kind of stuff. But none of them ever do it in their own portfolios. Mm. Um, because what they do is they think that they're smarter than the markets and they always try and go and kind of take some, take some positions and do all of that. And very few of them make it work. But I think well, I'm, I haven't been through your stuff, but I'm assuming if it's about kind of not trying to make yourself rich tomorrow and making sure you're, you're picking and doing a hell of a lot of work on companies that are you kind of are making sure they're there for the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, strong market positions, all of that kind of stuff. 
look, I think that's a really interesting approach and I can see why that would work for a lot of people. Yeah, if I can throw in one last thing, basically like the core identity. And I think this is so important because you don't want people, because if you haven't done your homework, uninformed optimism can cause you to leap in with half of your net worth on something because of a headline, but then you will fall apart either on a 5% upswing and then you watch it go to the moon or you continue holding as it goes to nothing. It, it can self-sabotage. So the key thing to understand is the core traits of the investing profile that I'm talking about. And like I said, I'm totally standing on from the literature perspective on Peter Lynch's shoulders. He, he pointed this out in 89 and it's just gotten nothing but more true as we've gone deeper into the information revolution. But you as an investor, if you're going to go this road, you have to be long-term, you have to be concentrated and you have to be contrarian. There is a ton of variability within those constraints. And that's why I do what I do. What I do needs to be personalized. You can't really do this at scale. It's always in the context of what you're here to do and sort of the income lifestyle and contribution balance, triage, threesome that you're looking to create. And so that's very important, but we are not talking about winning in a six month period. We are certainly not talking about winning in a six hour period and that kind of thinking with the amount, with the ease of day trading, et cetera. And actually, I'd want to throw this out too, if I can. Lynch pointed out in, I believe it was 89, that 87% of shares traded hands in less than a, in less than a year. And with everything where it is now, that number has to be 99.9 .9 with the line over it. And so it is super contrarian, even just hold to hold for a year. And that's where we have to be living and we have to be at our best understanding that these principles are at the peak of their power during a recession or a depression when volatility, preferably in advance of investing, but certainly when volatility happens. Otherwise, you will sell and just decimate your livelihood out of probably fear or just exhaustion. And that's awesome. One of the reasons why I guess we or why why I'm always really talking to people a lot about core satellite strategy is, is because of this apparent contradiction or tension between these two things. But hopefully people listening and watching have kind of appreciate that it is a bit of a spectrum disorder, this whole investing thing. And maybe maybe we do start out with with diversification and we move more towards concentration. Um, I don't I don't know what the answer is necessarily, but I do know that the answer is probably different for each and every one of us. And um, I know for myself personally, I really value having a diversified core because I don't feel confident yet to, to move out in conviction in everything that I do. Um, but it doesn't stop me from being, you know, definitely concentrated in some core elements that I'm quite proud of at times, <laughs> just not this week. But that was awesome. Thank you very much for that chat, guys. That was really cool. Good meeting you, Rupert. Nice to meet you too. And uh, thanks. It's a good debate. And, I, and it's definitely not a one or the other. I think uh, the answer the answer lies in the middle, right? And core satellite's a great way to being able to do it and then figuring out if you're becoming increasingly confident in your concentrated strategy, then your, your satellite strategy in, in our parlance just gets bigger and bigger until it's the whole. That's right. There you go. <laughs> That's awesome, guys. All right. Well, thanks very much. Uh, we'll catch you next time, guys. Thank you. And Thank you. Cheers.